many of you know someone who's been incarcerated? And if you do, have you invited that person over for dinner? Do you know their story? Have you perhaps judged them based solely on that one fact that they were incarcerated? Oh, I love questions. So here's (laughs) another one. Do you know what happens to formerly incarcerated people once they leave prison? Because if you recall from some of our past episodes, we've shared that statistic that 95% of incarcerated people do leave prison and rejoin society. Do you think they're treated the same as everyone else? Oh, me, me, me. I have another question. (laughs) All right. Do you think that in the United States that punishment truly fits the crime? What do you think about when you hear the phrase, quote, law and order? And do you think our criminal justice system works? Okay, I feel like we're in the speed round. So one more. Do you know what the proper terminology is when you refer to someone who has spent time in prison? Yes, I learned it. (laughs) So listen, everyone, we are coming off a week of a lot of uncomfortable dialogue on the highest levels, and it's made a lot of us unsettled about the future of this country. But if any of the questions we just asked have intrigued you at any level, we encourage you to take some time to listen to this special two-part series where we interview someone who helps us answer all of these questions and more. We're talking to Marcus Bullock, the CEO of FlickShop. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Marcus, thank you so much for being here today with us. Can you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. My name is Marcus Bullock, and I am the CEO and founder of FlickShop. We built a technology that keeps families connected to their incarcerated loved ones. FlickShop is a mobile application that allows our users to take a picture, add some quick text, press send, and for 99 cents, we print and ship real tangible picture on a postcard and ship it to any person in any prison anywhere in the country. The reason why we built this technology is because social media, emailing and texting and all of the the ways that we digest content and communications with our family, our friends, the way that we see the new dog on Instagram of our nephew or niece, or their college graduations, the cousin or the best friend or the husband in prison doesn't have an opportunity to experience that. And so we wanted to be able to build, figure out a way to build a technology that allows for that to happen. And so after connecting 170,000 users, we're trying to figure out now how to not only help connect family members, but also businesses and organizations that want to like hire people that are coming out of prison, so forth and so on. The reason why this is important to me is because I went to prison when I was a 15-year-old kid. I carjacked a man in a shopping mall parking lot with my 16-year-old best friend, and we both got sentenced to eight, nine years inside of adult maximum security prisons. So as a 15-year-old, this has got an eight-year sentence. I was, you know, obviously shooken for not only for like my life, but for my future and knowing that everything had shifted from that point forward. My mom saw that sense of depression when I was around 17 and I knew I had six years left and I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And she chipped in and started sending me pictures and letters for the remaining six years every day to give me a window to the world. It kept me really connected to her and my family members in a very interesting way, as well as my friends who up in those cells with. So when we came home, we knew we wanted to figure out a way to be able to replicate that level of love that my mom was able to display for me. And we wanted to build scalable tech that can do that. Fast forward to today, 
And I'm really excited that we're able to accomplish that goal by connecting millions of families around the country. Everything you just said ties into the fact that people are still human. And I think when we hear labels about, especially, I mean, we can talk about some of the languaging that we've used until this point and how we need to eliminate words like felon and ex-con and we replace them with new words. Like, I want to talk about that. But the point of it is we are so used to labeling people who are in prison as other and as labeling by like the thing they did wrong. And so you are humanizing all of that. And it's so important because there's, according to the stats, 2.5 million people currently in prison, 95% of incarcerated people are going to be released. And yet so many people, me included, probably lots of listeners have not been really given a chance to talk to returning citizens. Certainly not about, you know, this openly where we're going to be able to dive into some of your experiences and your thoughts about it. So I'm really glad that you're here because I think what you have to say is going to be impactful on so many levels. Thank you for sharing. And uh, let's dive in. Absolutely. I'm super pumped about it. I'm glad that you threw some of those numbers out there. I mean, you're right. I mean, there's 600,000 people that are coming home from prison every year and they've been relegated to a new caste system of folks who are less than. And we want to not only be able to bring that humanity back for the people, the returning citizens that are coming home, but even well before they come home, how are we being thoughtful about preparing those humans for the world ahead of them? Today's a good start for a bunch of people that will learn about ways that they can help contribute to that. Let's jump in. Let's do it. That's awesome. You know, I think we wanted to start a little bit with your own story because I heard you speak about that moment when you're in the courtroom and you're 15 years old and you're standing in front of the judge and, you know, you're thinking you're going to go home, basically. Like you're, you know, this isn't, this is sort of a a blip or you're focused on, you know, not what's happening in the courtroom, let's say, but I think you mentioned like the shirt that your girlfriend bought you or, you know, like you're a 15 year old boy. So can you explain how that felt? And, you know, you're in this courtroom, you have carjacked this car with your friend and now you're standing in front of that judge. Can you talk about that for us? Absolutely. <laughs> that was a very interesting time back in those days. Let me tell you, sitting in that courtroom, it was interesting, right? Because, you know, you mentioned like my brain, I was there. They say I was there, right? But my brain wasn't on anything that was going to court. In fact, like I didn't even understand what was happening, what they were talking about in the courtroom, right? Like I just a, a few weeks later, I was in, I'm in 10th grade. It's my sophomore year in high school. I have vocabulary words, right? Let's paint a picture. I have vocabulary words. And now there's a new vocabulary that I have to learn in addition to the vocabulary words that I thought that I was going to have to memorize out of my earth science class, right? And so now I'm learning new words like concurrent and consecutive and arraignment and Miranda rights. When they first told me, it was like, yo, did you get your Miranda? I'm like, who's Miranda? Right? I had no idea who Miranda was. And they talking about like, you have the <laughs> to remain silent. The entire time, all I was talking about was I want to just call my mother. Whether or not remaining silent about a crime, like forget remaining silent, I have the right to remain silent. I have the right, I want to call my mom and go home because again, yeah, my girlfriend just promised to buy me a Kenneth Cole t-shirt and it was winter break and I was going to be able to come back to school. That was where my brain was. Even during all the court hearings, at, even during my sentencing, when they were starting to give me my sentence and he's giving me, you know, five years for this and three years for that and yep. Like, and he's adding them all together. And my, I could do math. Like, I'm in 10th grade, so I could do very good algebra even, probably geometry, you know what I mean, depending on which day of the week you caught me and if I went to class in second period or not. But I'm in a courtroom, and now there's a new math. 
right? And there's a new math that determines the rest of my life, my fate. And the judge asks me, do you understand what's happening to you, young man? I'm like, yes, I do understand what's happening to me. Because what I'm going to say, no, I don't understand what's happening to me. So I say, yes, I understand what's happening to me. But, Your Honor, I have a question. Does you mean to tell me I'm not going to be able to go home for Christmas? And that's when my mom just started breaking down, like, yo, my baby doesn't even understand what's happening right now. When you and your friend made the decision, did you have, like, consequences? Absolutely. I knew carjacking was wrong. Like, I wasn't stupid. I knew goodness well, like, pulling a gun out on the man, telling him to get out of his car, getting into it and pulling off was definitely 100% wrong. In fact, probably enough, like, if that had happened to my mom, I would be, like, ready to flip out and be like, who in the world did this and how can we figure out how to solve this problem immediately, right? So I knew that what it was interesting during that time was that there was a blurred line between what I knew to be right and wrong and what the legal ramifications were behind the decision that I had made. Whatever the punishment was, was never going to be fitting for any type of crime. And so whether it be me, you know, not bringing home a report card and getting it signed by my mom and me signing her signature on my own, fighting someone at school because I just wanted to intervene because I saw somebody bullying another kid, riding in a stolen car with my best friend on the way to a skating ring while smoking weed, carjacking someone in a shopping mall parking lot, pulling off and joyriding with my best friend on the way home with the plans to go to church on Sunday morning. All of those were a part of the same class of what happens on a random Friday night. Whether or not we chose to go with one or the other was simply based on, was predicated on what was presented to me at the time. The presentation of, you know, what to do, you know, like the good things that we were doing, like, you know, my mom would put me in the oratorical contest and I was an orator, you know, at my church. The basketball tournaments that, you know, I, like all of those things were just another thing, another group of things that were presented to me. My brain now, my 38-year-old brain now today is able to draw very, very clear, distinguishing black and white lines on the things that I probably, the things I were presented with that I probably should have allocated more of my attention to. But back in those days, it was like, you can't be what you can't see. And what was in front of me was riding with my friends and smoking weed and then stolen a car on the way to the skating ring, going to go talk to a girl. I think that that's so powerful about, you know, what, because I think when people hear about prison and people who commit crimes and they think about, you know, the crime and they think about people should be punished for crimes, but they don't, you know, going back to what we've been talking about, sort of don't reflect on the humanity of that situation. And you are in each moment. And, you know, a 15 year old boy being faced with a whole bunch of different options at any given time, you're a 15 year old boy. So you understand right from wrong, but you know, there is an underlying humanity in who you are throughout this. I think that people tend to push to the side when you think about punishment and doing something wrong. I want to go back to that moment in the courtroom then when, you know, you ask the judge, you know, are you going to be going home for Christmas? And, you know, when that sort of sinks in that you're not going home, like, how does that feel for you? It didn't sink in until, the, until December the 26th. And then it was like, all right, well... That was a tough day because they just didn't figure out how to let me go yesterday. But they'll definitely figure out how to let me go before the new year. Because clearly, there's no way on God's green earth they're going to let me bring a new year in away from my family. They, especially once they find out, they figure out that I miss Christmas. Once it just hears that I miss Christmas, they're going to be like, wait a minute. 
there's no way, right? And they're going to come and pick me up on New Year's. And then you know what happens? New Year's Eve, everyone is in a sale and a block. And they're like, yo, it's about to be New Year's. And people are celebrating New Year's. And I'm looking around like, what the heck are we celebrating New Year's for, right? But in my mind, I'm like, yo, y'all celebrating New Year. Y'all saying, you know what I mean, Happy New Year. It's going to be 1997. And my world is like, well, as soon as, you know, New Year's morning, like they start releasing people, I think around about 8 o'clock. My mom will be here at 8 o'clock in the morning. And somebody will make sure that she knows where to come and pick me up from and what kind of paperwork she needs to sign to let them know she'll be going home. And then by 12 o'clock noon, I'm like, so I'm probably going to get that afternoon release because now it's like 12 and they just bought lunch. And I'm not going to eat that, that bologna and cheese, that cold, dry bologna and cheese sandwich because I'm going to eat, you know, when I get home, my mom will cook me some food. And so at 6 p.m. when they bring dinner, I'm like, all right, well, I'm definitely not eating that nasty baked chicken. Like, who? That don't even look like chicken. And my mom would be mad because I know she made a big pot of spaghetti. And she's going to be mad. I'm not going to be hungry. So I'll eat that t- tomorrow when, you know, when I get home. Tomorrow morning for breakfast, we repeat that process over and over and over and over again. And then, interestingly enough, it was really my naivety and it was my na- delirium that allowed me to even remain sane during those first years when I probably should have collapsed. Because um, my brain, my, I just wasn't mentally, I couldn't mentally accept what was happening. Psychologically, something wasn't clicking to say, dude, <laughs> nah, they not playing, man. You about to have to do this eight years, homeboy. <laughs> like, it wasn't clicking quite yet. It's interesting to hear you talk about the, like, the psychological impact, the denial at first, and what it takes to get through. I definitely want to come back to a day in the life inside. But one thing I am really curious about, like, for psychology and philosophy perspective, right? I think a lot of people beat themselves up for things that they've done. And they define themselves by that one moment or that thing in their life. Like, do you think that, I guess this is a two-part question. Like, do you get over something like that? Do you identify yourself by that and get over it? Or do you not? And it becomes part of your identity. Like, does a mistake define you? And then also, how do you respond to people who say, well, you did something wrong and you should be punished for it? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a great question. Let's go to the first one first. The first one, so did I, I'm going to speak for me, right? Like, you know, the millions of people, 70 million people in the country, the U.S. to have a criminal record. I ain't going to speak for all of them, but I will speak for, I'm one of them. My mother was like, yo, I'm like a, such a statistic. Anyway, do I identify, like, so, nah, I don't, right? I think that the, you know, one of the reasons why I think that most people do is because they, they get hung up when they come home from prison. It's because, I mean, people, they beat it in you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, not only do the people before you come home beat it in you that you have a felony on your record, that you, like you, sir, you, ma'am, you are convicted felon, right? And then, like, not only do they beat it on, but, like, it's, and you're constantly reminded in it of it in every single day, you know what I mean? Like, when you go in to go, whether or not you're going to apply for a job, going to go look for an apartment, going to go try to go, I can't coach my son's basketball team. Right. My HOA, they, I can't put my name on my HOA in my neighborhood and only my wife's name can go on it because if they found out, they might be like, yo, nah. And they love me. They're like, oh, Marcus, he's the CEO of something. We don't even know what it is. He's CEO of something. Right. You know what I mean? But the moment that they found out, they was like, oh, wait a minute. They probably they did some more Google and they were like, wait a minute. Right. Should we allow him, our kids to play with his kids? Because what do they do? Like, what do they learn? What do they teach their children? Right. And so like, that's just what it is. Right. And so people, when you have that cloud that's over your head and folks are beating it into you, sometimes it's hard to chip away at it and get it off your shoulder. 
and whether or not you want to get up every day and fight against it and brush your teeth and wash your face and think that the new day is going to be bright and your future is going to be perfect. And then before 9.30, someone else reminds you that you do have a felony on your record. It's challenging to walk through the rest of the day not repeating that you have a felony on your record, which allows you to go through the rest of the week saying, I have a felony on my record, and that's going to be able to cause barriers, which goes into the rest of the month that says, not only do I have a felony on my record that's going to cause barriers, but no one wants to give me a job or let me live here. That lets you go through the rest of the year saying, not only do I have a felony, I got barriers, I can't get a job, and people want to live around the neighborhood, but I'm officially a part of the social outcast that people, and then where I, you know what you do? You look for others. You look for your tribe, because that's what humans do. We look for our tribe. And then when you find your tribe, you ask yourself, what do you do every day as a part of the tribe? And unfortunately, the tribe typically looks the same. And then they end up mirroring what the tribe has done, causing that 76% recidivism rate that we read about that happens to people within the first three years of their release from prison. Now, one of the things I think that broke me apart from that is that I was blessed to be able to live inside of an era in a time and get arrested and sentenced when things were different and shifting. First, I was 15 years old. I wasn't 35 years old and then having that moment of a 10-year sentence and knowing that at 45 is going to be challenging to restart a life. I, once it finally sunk in, you know, a few years later, and I started to build the mental stamina and tenacity that I knew that it was going to take to get me to all the way through the release, my release date, I was still only 23 years old when I came home from prison. Now, that was one of the benefits, but also I was 23 years old and coming home from prison at the beginning of a tech era that started to see rapid advancement, something that the world had never seen before. Web 2.0 had just dropped and it allowed my 23-year-old brain to be able to leverage how websites are allowing for commerce to happen. That started to shift the world and we started to see not only what was happening inside of the real estate markets, when, you know, a couple of years later landed in a pending recession, but that pending recession also allowed me to come home in a recession where everyone else was drowning in fear and I was bursting with excitement and energy. And I knew that I could leverage that excitement and energy and create something inside a bustling construction energy industry inside the Washington metropolitan area that wasn't really impacted by what was happening around the world. That's the fourth thing. I was released to Washington, D.C. and not inside of Dallas, Texas, or inside of Detroit, where they're driven by automotive industries that were collapsing at the time. The fifth thing was I had an amazing family that was praying for me, allowing me to be able to have a deep-rooted faith that allowed me to walk through every scenario with perspective. You see, having perspective is a magical thing. It's better than having courage and hope, and courage and hope are the two things that are only going things that allow you that. But perspective allowed me to be able to walk through the world and be like, yo, my problems are so not problems. The problems that people are pointing out to me that are problems, like, yo, you don't have a car, you got to walk to work. I'm like, bro, I used to walk on a prison rec yard for miles every day, hoping and praying just to be able to see a sidewalk with grass on both sides of it. See, in your world, you don't even notice the grass on both sides of a sidewalk. In my world, I see grass, bro, and I ain't seen grass in almost a decade. It's a different kind of grass. It looks like it's even greener, literally. And so as I think about the perspective that I had, it allowed me to be able to not self-identify with the carjacking markets, but this new world, this new perspective, this new faith, and this new hope that I allowed me to be able to go out and say, yo, it don't matter people slamming doors in my face. 
real talk, like, yo, again, Spider and Andy will cut their right arms off to be able to just go in and sit in front of a woman. I had an interview with a woman today, with a woman. I've been around men for the last almost decade of my life, right? Those little small things, I was able to go to the refrigerator and get something out. How magical is that, right? So all of those things, I think, collectively allow me to be able to create a new identity for myself as a 23-year-old man. Now, let's pivot to the second question around the, like, what do you say to people that, like, yo, you should have got locked up? Real talk. Like, here's the thing. If I walk out of my house right now after this call and someone pulls a gun out on me and takes my car, Marcus, do you think that they should get arrested? Let me tell you the very first thing I'm going to do. Now I want somebody just robbed me and stole my car. I can't, right? You know what I mean? Now, the person on the other end of that call is going to be the arresting, a part of the team of the arresting officers that will potentially catch this person and give them the next several years of their lives taken away from them. So, like, I mean, dude, like, you mad that's, that you got locked up, you know what I mean, for eight years? Well, I'm not mad that I was arrested. I'm not mad, you know what I mean, that, and for real, I'm not even mad about the bid, because to be honest, my silver lining is I have eight years of market research inside of a, one of the most social impact, one of the most impactful companies in the app for today. Now, there's that. But I'm not mad about the arrest, right? Because I think that there's something that has to happen when you get offline, off course, and you need some type of correction. But I mean, I was a 15-year-old kid, and I experienced puberty in prison, and something can't be right about that. Well... Plus, you were a 15-year-old in adult prison. In an adult maximum security prison. Can you talk about, like, because, you know, we can read about juvenile detention facilities versus adult prison, but, like, what's it like as a kid in an adult prison? And like you said, you went through puberty in this. Like, how does that affect you at that age of your development as a human being? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I lived in denial the first couple years, you know, so it allowed me. I literally thought I was going home every weekend for two years straight. It wasn't until I met my homeboy, Danny B, who was like in his mid-50s. I mean, I'm like 17. And it's crazy, right? You know, prison is the only place where you can be like 17 and one of your best friends is like in their mid-50s. And so he and I are walking around the prison wreck yard track and I asked him how long he had been in. And he had told me he had served 31 years. And that was the moment that shifted things for me. Up until that moment, like I lived in denial. And so everybody else was incarcerated and I wasn't. I just happened to be there. And I would just read as much as I could to make sure that I could, you know, could go back to high school and get my high school diploma once I got out in the next week or two. I would write my girlfriend every single day, write my mom. I would, you know, write, you know, my aunts and uncles, like anybody I could. I would ask my mother for the church directory and be like, give me the church directory. I'm, I'm going to write Miss Johnson, Miss Maxwell, and I'm going to write everybody. I ain't got a lot of time in my hands, you know what I mean? And people would write me back and they would talk about, you know, what was going on in school, right? And so then I would like, have conversations on the prison rec yard about things that were going on in school until I learned that the folks that was 40 and 50 years old didn't want to hear about what was happening at Sula High School. They didn't want to hear what was going on in junior and senior. They didn't want to hear about senior trip. And so what ended up happening is it built up a sense of callousness to, that they had that just rolled over and spilled on over to me. And so now, like, when I'm calling home, I no longer wanted to talk about that stuff either. I didn't want to hear about it. I didn't want to get the newest news because I was influenced by the folks who, you know, were able to cloud my head with the, their jaded judgment of being in prison and not having any kind of family connectivity there. They hadn't had any family connectivity themselves for the last five or six years. And here I come with my blessed behind, able to call home. And, and my mom was willing to accept those $18, you know, 15-minute collect calls. Most people didn't have that. My mom was willing to write me letters and my girlfriend was writing me back because she would do it while she after school when she was doing her homework. People didn't have people that were writing them back. 
And so while my experience was different than most that were there, it ended up happening was while their callousness was brewing over and creating this new markets, that's when depression started to set in. The hopelessness started to set in. And like my sale partner had life plus 43. I'm like 17, 18 years old with a sale partner that got life. And he always talked about how he's going to die in prison. I'm naturally thinking I'm going to die in prison. So what does humans do? We adapt to our surroundings and we become the birds that flock with those feathers. And so when my mom started to, my mom made that promise to me saying, I'm going to, I, she saw it and she's like, look, there's no way that I'm going to allow for this to happen. Like there's no way I'm going to allow you to turn into this callous, like hurtful. I was hurtful. Like I would say things to my mom that was, I'm like, look, mom, start grieving now. I'm going to die here. Richmond is beefing with DC. I'm from DC. I'm locked up in Virginia. Everybody here is from Virginia. I'm like one of six people here from DC. And every morning I got to wake up and make sure I know what my lawnmower blade is. And I got to carry it in my coat because I got to be war ready at any moment. Ma, I don't have time to be talking about what's going on in church and your friends and what's happening at your office and your job and like why the FDA medical library is staffing new people. I don't care about you and working at no daggone FDA, Ma. Look, start grieving me now and don't come see me anymore. I'm not going to write you anymore. I'm not going to call. Like, let me go because this is my new world. And my mom was, <laughs> she was, you know, such a mom. She's like, boy, you have lost your mind. I hear all, all that stuff you're talking. You have, you done gone crazy. You did some, I knew they doing something to you. They doing something to you. If you think that I'm going to let you go to this prison culture and let you die behind bars as if I have nothing to say. I may not be able to be there to wrap my arms around you. I may not be there to be able to read to you or to do homework with you. I may not be able to be a share a bowl of chili and cornbread with you. But what I will do is I make sure that every one of those cornbread and chili moments, I'm going to include you in it. So I'm going to take a picture of it. I'm going to take a picture of what's happening in church. I'm going to take a picture of what's going on in my office. I'm going to write you a letter about it. And you're going to see that there's a world that's outside of that world that you're in that's waiting for you to come home. She did that every day for the remaining six years of my life, I mean, of my sentence. And that's what really connected and kept me connected. And that level of love, it's a prime example of how love can overshadow the worst and most harshest conditions literally in the country. And it brought me out to be able to be the man that I am today. And I'm so grateful for her for that. I mean, I don't know about you, Misasha, but that just tapped into the mama bear of, in me. Oh, totally. I love your mom. <laughs> like your mom <laughs> sounds incredible, right? She's amazing, like amazing, like amazing. And now, I mean, when it wasn't until, it's interesting, right? When you go to prison, you know, you think that, you know, it was me. I would always say, talk about how, Ma, you don't understand, I'm in here. I'm the one that's doing this time. You don't understand what it's like to wake up every morning and have the same day repeated every day all over again. You know what it's like to have somebody telling you when you can go to the bathroom, when you can go to sleep, when you have to wake up. You better make your bed. You don't know what it's like to be able to want to refute that, and then you got seven guards coming in there with belly ties and buttons, and they beating you up and then dragging you to another cell, lock you in there without any daylight, with only water, and bring you back out and saying you're going to act right now, knowing that you there's no recourse. There's no, ain't no body cams. There's nothing. You're just in there, and you got to deal with it. And there's no one to snitch to. You can't tell anybody. There's no governance for this. You don't understand this, mom. And she's like, Marcus, you don't understand what it's like to come home from work every day and knowing there's nothing you can do to help protect your 15-year-old son. You know what it's like to be able to know that I'm coming home and I'm cooking dinner because I'm accustomed for years, decades even, of cooking dinner for multiple people. And every day I still come home for multiple people and set a plate and before I realize that there's no one that's going to sit across from me. And I sit there and I got to cry 
every single night. And there's no one that I can call to be able to say that you understand this. You know why? Because they don't know what it's like to have a 15-year-old kid inside a prison. And if they do, if they don't, you know what they do? They always look at me funny like, oh, were you a good parent? Were you a good mom? What could you have done to mitigate him from going to prison? And now I got to walk around feeling like I'm a horrible person. So I got to be a recluse. I can't go to church. I can't hang out after school. I can't hang out at other events. And even more so, I can't even afford it. You know why? Because your phone calls are $18 for 15 minutes. I got a $700 a month phone bill every month. That can't even afford to live in my three-bedroom apartment anymore. I got to go move into efficiency just to make sure that you can call home just so I can make sure you're alive. And you better call me every day because I need to make sure that you're alive every day because you're my son and I need to know and if you don't call me, I'm going to call down to that warden and I'm going to find out if you're alive. And I don't care if they say that this is a prison, ma'am. You're going to go find out if my son is alive. And it was interesting because I had to sit there and I had to digest all of that. And I had to know that I wasn't the only one that was incarcerated. It wasn't just me. For the next several years of my life, my mom would have to endure in the level of pain that I put her through out of what decision I made in a 15-second span in a mall parking lot. What kind of son am I? And that's how I had to deal with, begin to deal with that as well. I do love your mother. I think that she's amazing. But just hearing what you're going through, what she's going through, you know, how you both are having your experiences separately and how, you know, you need each other at the same time and how that just to me reinforces that humanity that, you know, that is separated and broken when we are incarcerating people and when we do remove them from those ties and sever those ties. So it makes what you're doing right now even more important. But I also, you know, you're, so you're in this place of depression or cynicism and callousness and you've sort of come to this mindset where, you know, based on what you've heard from people telling you, you know, that you're going to die in prison and your mom's fighting to keep you out of that mindset. So where does that change come? Like, you know, she starts sending you these letters and photos and I'm assuming it's not like a, you know, 180, suddenly you're starting to get these and you're like, bam, I'm back. I have hope. So can you talk about that process? Like, what was that? How did that happen for you? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I think that it was a, it was a collection of those moments. I mean, it wasn't just my mom, right? It was like my mom and her making that commitment to me, but also seeing the lack of others not having that same experience, right? Like that will also give you perspective because it allowed you to see even in that moment, I was privileged. And we all, once we come, most of us at least, once we come to one certain tipping point in our own lives and our own maturations, of adulthood, I think that we begin to appreciate those moments of privilege differently. And then there's stages of it, right? Because I think that even now, right, there's a level of privilege that I have that I am like every freaking day trying to figure out ways to leverage it for others. And I think that majority of us, once we have that moment and that realization, we all start to chip in into, you know, and tap into that moment of humanity in ourselves. And I think that that's what ended up happening for me, where it was like, my friends, like, they were all looking at me like, dude, your level of privilege is it like, right, I'm in prison, right? Your level of privilege is amazing. Like, you're literally the most privileged person here. First of all, you say I'm 10 years old. You're going to go home at 23. Like, I'm 30 now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, dude, when you go home, you live to see 80, you got 60 more years of this. You know what I mean? Right? So, one. Two, you have family members who actually care about you and support you through the journey. Right? Because... In print, like, it's with anything, right? Like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. In prison, you know, you go on over for two weeks, you know, two weeks, and it turns into six months, six months turn into two years, and next thing you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I have a cousin in jail. 
he's been in jail for four or five years and you don't think about him any longer, right? And so now when that cousin is my sale partner, they're like, yo, all of their family members have faded out of their lives over the years and mine's are still there, right? And then on top, like all of these levels of privilege, you know what I mean, they're compounding and I'm thinking about it and I'm realizing there's a level of awareness that, a level of self-awareness that was overcoming me. And so my mom, her letters allowed me to be able to connect in a different way. And so now I'm like, yo, you know, I can have conversations with my mom expressing that privilege, right? I can be like, yo, you know, I can be like, mom, when I come home, I want to start this business and this kind of business I want to start. And I want to start learning about the stock market. And this is the reasons why. And I feel like if I learn and I, if I save my money for the next three years on my commissary, I'll be able to send money home to you, mom. I'll be able to do this. I can start my first business when I come home. Or I can invest in my first, you know, four or five companies in my stock portfolio when I come home. And my mom was reading these new letters from this new market. It's like, you want to do, wait, wait a minute. Wait, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, FICO. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, it was like, I had a, I wanted a subscription to Condé Nast Traveler magazine because I was so fascinated by these different beaches, you know, that had these bungalows that, you know, tripped out into the water. And I'm like, yo, Tahiti sounds like the move, right? And then I started learning about other places. And then I became fascinated by these other vacation spots. I would read articles about how, you know, you couldn't fly in on a commercial jetliner to St. Bart's. And so, but you, so you had to fly like this one island and then up on another. And I'm like, yo, that's a whole other way of vacation than when you got to catch. Like, how you do that? And how much does that vacation cost? And then I started learning, you know, you hear the rap songs, they talk about Rolexes. And that was cool and that was dope. But then I read the articles about CEOs who had just purchased, they didn't purchase watches. They started purchasing timepieces to give to their heirs called Vakaron Constantines. I'm like, wait a minute, Vaka who the what? How do you pronounce that? Where do they buy that at? Where's Genevieve? Like, how do you get there? I want to know what this is, right? You know, because apparently they make the best watch. And for $700,000 for a watch, I didn't know, right? And so this different new market started to evolve and my mom saw it and she started to feed it. And she was like, look, this is amazing. Like, I will get you as many magazine subscriptions as you want. I'll do as it. And then she started writing me about stuff. And I'm like, mom, like, can you research how to buy a Foot Locker? And she's like, can you buy Foot Locker? I'm like, I don't know, but I feel like somebody got to own it, right? And so then we learned about what franchise was. I'm like, a franchise? Really? Okay, McDonald's, I see you, right? And so that's how I learned about what balance sheets were on profit and loss. So now I'm like six months coming away from coming home. And I'm like, yo, I can't wait till they pop the doors. All they got to do is pop the doors and I'm pressing the go button. And it's going to look like literally like a Staples commercial. That was easy. What I heard, I mean, I'm laughing at this because I'm so glad you had that. But the turning point sounded like it was that connection, you know, in contrast with, how do I refer to it? Your fellow inmates? Like, but you're not supposed to use, what's the phrase that I'm supposed to use? Like the fellow people who were in prison? Like the, do like a quick vocabulary check here. Like, yeah, and I appreciate that. You know, so we want to try to eradicate the word inmate or convicts or felon or because we, when you led the conversation within the beginning, talking, you know, attributing a level of humanity to people that were there, right? Or the people that are still there or like the people that came home or people like me. If you love me, just don't use that word. So, what I would say, like, you know, when I refer to my boys, I'm like, yo, literally, they were my boys, they were my friends. Like, you know, and I guess, like, if I was in college, I would probably. If I was talking to someone, I probably would say my like my college roommate or something, right? And so I would, if, if I was talking about, but I would probably say my friend, like my friend John, you know what I mean? Like I was with John, you know what I mean? But in prison, I would probably, you know, for my friends, I'm like, yo, the dude so I was locked up with or my friends or something. 
But anyway, go back to your question. Like you were asking about Bawa friends. What about it? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple questions about the, what's it like inside where, you know, the dynamic movies portray the conversations between people who are in prison. It's like, everyone's like, no, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. You know, what are the, and yet, so also when we read like Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, like 19% of people were in prison for a violent crime in, in her book and the statistics which is probably the category that you would fall into versus a lot of people in prison for like really minor drug crimes. Right. Yeah. Do you talk about the crimes that brought you into, or the, you know, the situations that brought you into prison when you're inside, like what are the conversations like with your friends? Cause like you said, you were bringing hope and this stuff and then people, there was a lot of cynicism, but like, what is conversation like with your friends? It really is a microcosm of what it is we experience out here today, right? Like, I don't know what brought you to this podcast, to podcasting. So I don't, and, and I guess like the deeper the relationship that we have, that you and I have, I'll learn and I'll learn about your story, your own founder story to get to this journey. But the other, you know, the majority of folks who I talk to on a regular basis, unless I have a deep rooted conversation with them, I won't know what college they went to or what got them to want to choose a major, right? It's the same way in prison. It literally is the same way, right? Like my boys, my best friends, the ones who I have real deep rooted relations with, it's kind of hard to not, like you in prison, you know what I mean? Hey, you my sale partner? Like, dude, we've been in sale for five years. I know everything. Not only do I know what brought you to prison, I know your sixth grade teacher's best friend's name. I know about that one time you fell off. We are like an old Murray Kelly. I know everything there is to know about you, right? And so there's that. Is there a culture of like, yo, I didn't do it or all that? Not really. Like, that's all TV. Like, because TV is, the media is going to depict people that are, that are living in these cells as like, what they want, you got to be able to justify making the decision to send someone away for 70 years. So, you know, in that justification, it, what it doesn't look like is showing a bunch of people on a TV screen that look like a wreck yard full of Marcuses. Contrary to the media's portrayal, they're a wreck yard full of Marcuses that are waiting for and praying for that opportunity right? They're all right now playing the same stock market game right now, right in me today. Like, yo, Marcus, did you ride that wave or that Tesla wave? It was up 444%. They just had a five to one split. Yo, I hope you got in on that. And I'm like, yeah, man, but you know, the split really don't mean nothing. They're like, nah, but you should check Apple. They had a four to one right now. And right now, even though it's down a week on 7%, right? These are the letters I'm getting from people in prison. Mind you, some of my best friends out here in the community can't articulate what's happening in the markets right now. Or they can't tell me what kind of legal structure to be able to start their business out with and why an LLC is probably better than an escort. Or, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, so if any of you guys listen to that, I'm not saying that an LLC is better than an escort. Please consult your legal. Um, legal. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? But like, they, you know what I mean? My friends there, you know what I mean? Like, and like, that's what ends up happening, right? It's like a culture full of people that are saying like, yo, I tricked up. I carjacked somebody. Or yeah, man, you know, I got caught with, you know, two bricks of coke in a trunk and a gun and yeah and now i'm here and now i'm trying to figure out a way to be able to figure out how to be the next ceo of you know pepsi right and then that ambitious by the way like that was not an exaggeration right now folks are not sitting the reality of it is the folks that are like yo i come home get a job and you know like my mom was like my mom suffered from the same you know previous ideas of like what is what should look like coming home she's like yo that's what you need a job if you need to get a job at mcdonald's or this i'm like get a job i would not saying that I don't, you know, like, because, like, some of my best friends, you know what I mean, started their careers working at McDonald's, right? So, not that, but I just didn't aspire to that, Ma. I want to be a sales rep at Xerox, you know what I mean? And she's like, well, you know, and so people that are sitting in those sales, the reality of it is it's not until you come home from prison 
and you apply for a job at the job and you get beat up every day before you realize like, yo, all right, I guess I got to settle for either my tribe or whatever, right? But most folks, yeah, they, they sit there right now. They're like, yo, I want to go work at Goldman Sachs. And in my head, I'm thinking like, so what's your path to Goldman Sachs? I want to hear this. I need to hear this because this is going to be very entertaining. Somehow, some of them get up, make it there. I'm one of the blessed ones. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.